Chapter Twelve of Gunman's Reckoning by Max Brand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. By the time absolute darkness had set in, Donnegan, in the new role of lady's chaperone, sat before a dying fire with Louise Macon beside him. He had easily seen from his talk with Stern that Landis was a public figure, whether from the richness of his claims or his relations with Lord Nick and Lebron, or because of all these things. But as a public figure, it would be impossible to see him alone in his own tent, and unless Louise could meet him alone, half her power over him, supposing that she still retained any, would be lost. Better by far that Landis should come to her than she should come to him, so Donnegan had rented two tents by the day at an outrageous figure from the enterprising real estate company of the corner, and to this new home he brought the girl. She accepted the arrangement with surprising equanimity. It seemed that her father's training had eliminated from her mind any questioning of the motives of others. She became even cheerful as she set about arranging the pack which Donnegan put in her tent. Afterward, she cooked their supper over the fire which he built for her. Never was there such a quick house-setting, and by the time it was absolutely dark, they had washed the dishes and sat before Lou's tent, looking over the night-lights of the corner, and hearing the voice of its great white way opening. She had not even asked why he did not bring her straight to Jack Landis. She looked into Donnegan's tent, furnished with a single blanket and his canvas kit, and had offered to share her pack with him. And now they sat side by side before the tent, and still she asked no questions about what was to come. Her silence was to Donnegan the dropping of the water upon the hard rock. He was crumbling under it, and a wild hatred for the colonel rose in him. No doubt that spirit of evil had foreseen all this, and he knew that every moment spent with the girl would drive Donnegan on closer to the accomplishment of the colonel's great purpose, the death of Jack Landis. For the colonel, as Jack's next of kin, would take over all his mining interests and free them at a stroke from the silent partnership which apparently existed with Lord Nick and Lester. One bullet would do all this, and with Jack dead, who else stood close to the girl? It was only necessary that she should not know who sped the bullet home. A horrible fancy grew up in Donnegan as he sat there that between him and the girl lay a dead body. He was glad when the time came and he could tell her that he was going down to the corner to find Jack Landis and bring him to her. She rose to watch him go, and he heard her say, Come soon. It shocked Donnegan into realization that for all her calm exterior she was perfectly aware of the danger of her position in the wild mining camp. She must know also that her reputation would be compromised, yet never once had she winced, and Donnegan was filled with wonder as he went down the hill toward the camp which spread beneath him, for their tents were a little detached from the main body of the town. Behind her gentle eyes he now felt, under the softness of her voice, there was the same iron nerve that was in her father. 
Her hatred could be a deathless passion, and her love also, and the great question to be answered now was, did she truly love Jack Landis? The corner at night was like a scene at a circus. There was the same rush of people, the same irregular flush of lights, the same glimmer of lanterns through canvas, the same air of impermanence. Once, in one of those hushes which fall upon every crowd, he heard a coyote wailing sharply and far away, as though the desert had sent out this voice to mock at the corner and all it contained. He had only to ask once to discover where Landis was, Milligan's dance hall. Before Milligan's place a bonfire burned from the beginning of dusk to the coming of day, and until the time when the fire was quenched with buckets of water, it was a sign to all that the merriment was underway in the dance hall. If Lebron's was the sun of the amusement world in the corner, Milligan's was the moon. Everybody who had money to lose went to Lebron's. Everyone who was out for gaiety went to Milligan's. Milligan was a plunger. He had brought up an orchestra, which demanded $15 a day, and he paid them that and more. He not only was able to do this, but he established a bar at the entrance, from which all who entered were served with a free drink. The entrance also was not subject to charge. The initial drink at the door was spiced to encourage thirst, so Milligan made money as fast and far more easily than if he had been digging it out of the ground. To the door of this pleasure emporium came Donnegan. He had transformed himself into the ragged hobo by the jerking down of his cap again and the hunching of his shoulders. And shrinking past the bar with a hungry sideways glance, as one who did not dare present himself for free liquor, he entered Milligan's. That is, he had put his foot across the threshold when he was caught roughly by the shoulder and dragged to one side. He found himself looking up into the face of a strapping fellow who served Milligan as bouncer. Milligan had an eye for color. Andy Lewis was tolerably well known as a fighting man of parts, who not only wore two guns, but could use them both at once, which is much more difficult than is generally understood. But far more than for his fighting parts, Milligan hired his bouncer for the sake of his face. It was a countenance made to discourage troublemakers. A mule had kicked Lewis in the chin, and a great white welt deformed his lower lip. Scarves of smallpox added to his decorative effect, and he had those extremely bushy brows, which for some reason are generally considered to denote ferocity. Now Donnegan was not above middle height at best, and in his present shrinking attitude he found himself looking up a full head into the formidable face of the bouncer. "'And what are you doing in here?' asked the genial Andy. "'Don't you know this joint is for white folks?' "'I ain't colored,' murmured Donnegan. "'You look considerable yellow to me,' declared Lewis. He straightway chuckled, and his own keen appreciation of his wit softened his expression. "'What you want?' Donnegan shivered under his rags. "'I want to see Jack Landis,' he said." It had a wonderful effect upon the doorkeeper. Donnegan found 
that the very name of Landis was a charm of power in the corner. "'You want to see him?' he queried in amazement. "'You?' He looked Donnegan over again, and then grinned broadly, as if in anticipation. "'Well, go ahead. There he sits. No, he's dancing.' The music was in full swing. It was chiefly brass, but now and then, in softer moments, one could hear a violin squeaking uncertainly. At least it went along with a marked, regular rhythm, and the dancers swirled industriously around the floor. A very gay crowd. Color was apparently appreciated in the corner, and Donnegan, standing modestly out of sight behind a pillar until the dance ended, noted twenty phases of life in twenty faces. And Donnegan saw the flushes of liquor and heard the loud voices of happy fellows who had made their strikes. But in all that brilliant crew, he had no trouble in picking out Jack Landis and Nellie Lebron. They danced together, and where they passed, the others steered a little off so as to give them room on the dance floor, as if the men feared that they might cross the formidable Landis, and, as if the women feared, to be brought into too close comparison with Nellie Lebron. She was indeed a brilliant figure. She had eyes of the creole duskiness, a delicate olive skin with a pastel coloring. The hand on the shoulder of Landis was a thing of fairy beauty, and her eyes had that peculiar quality of seeming to see everything and rest on every face particularly. So that, as she whirled toward Donnegan, he winced, feeling that she had found him out among the shadows. She had a glorious partner to set her off, and Donnegan saw bitterly why Lou Macon could love him. Height without clumsiness, bulk and a light foot at once, a fine head, well-poised, blonde hair, and a Grecian profile. Such was Jack Landis. He wore a vest of fawn skin. His boots were black in the foot and finished with the softest red leather for the leg. And he had yellow buckskin trousers, laced in a Mexican fashion, with silver at the sides, a narrow belt, a long red silk handkerchief flying from behind his neck in cowboy fashion. So much flashing splendor, even in that gay assembly, would have been childishly conspicuous on another man. But in Big Jack Landis there was patently a great deal of the unaffected child. He was having a glorious time on this evening, and his eye roved the room, challenging admiration in a manner that was amusing rather than offensive. He was so overflowingly proud of having the prettiest girl in the corner upon his arm, and so conscious of being himself probably the finest-looking man, that he escaped conceit, it might almost be said, by his very excess of it. Upon this splendid individual, then, the obscure Donnegan bent his gaze. He saw the dancers pause and scatter as the music ended, saw them drift to the tables along the edges of the room, and saw the scurry of waiters hurrying drinks up in the interval, saw Nellie Lebron sip a lemonade, saw Jack Landis toss off something stronger, and then Donnegan skirted around the room and came to the table of Jack Landis at the very moment when the latter was tossing a gold piece to the waiter and giving a new order. Prodigal sons, in the distance of thought, 
are apt to be both silly and disgusting, but at close hand they usually dazzle the eye. Even the cold brain of Donnegan was daunted a little as he drew near. He came behind the chair of the tall master of the corner, and while Nellie Lebron stopped her glass halfway to her lips and stared at the ragged stranger, Donnegan was whispering in the ear of Jack Landis, "'I've got to see you alone.' Landis turned his head slowly, and his eyes darkened a little as he met the reddish, unshaven face of the stranger. Then, with a careless shrug of distaste, he drew out a few coins and poured them into Donnegan's palm. The latter pocketed them. "'Blue Macon,' said Donnegan. Jack Landis rose from his chair, and it was not until he stood so close to Donnegan that the latter realized the truly Herculean proportions of the young fellow. He bowed his excuses to Nellie Lebron, not without grace of manner, and then huddled Donnegan into a corner with a wave of his vast arm. "'Now what do you want? Who are you? Who put that name in your mouth?' "'She's in the corner,' said Donnegan, and he dwelt upon the face of Jack Landis with feverish suspense. A moment later, a great weight had slipped from his heart. If Lou Macon loved Landis, it was beyond preadventure that Landis was not breaking his heart because of the girl. For at her name, he flushed darkly, and then, that rush of color fading, he was left with a white spot in the center of each cheek. End of chapter 12